You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 159. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. After a brief hiatus, we are back to discuss our appearance at the recent virtual Canadian Money Show, including my panel discussion on investing in cycles and market valuations at present. Aaron hits the mailbag to answer a question on two unique small cap royalty based stocks Nova Royalty Corp, symbol NOVR on the TSX Venture, and Electric Royalties Limited, symbol ELEC on the TSX Venture as well. Nova is a royalty company focusing on providing investors with exposure to key building blocks of clean energy that would be copper and nickel. For its part, Electric Royalties was established to take advantage of demand for a wide range of commodities. Lithium, vanadium, magnesium, tin, graphite, cobalt, nickel, zinc, copper, and I'm sure much more that should benefit from the drive towards electrification of a variety of consumer products. That's really easy to say, including cars. Rechargeable batteries, large-scale energy storage, renewable energy generation, and other applications. Aaron takes a look at whether the businesses are producing anything close to cash flow or significant revenues at present. Finally, Brennan discusses a listener question on how to buy big U.S. tech firms such as Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft in fractional shares with Canadian dollars via CIBC's new Canadian deposit receipts or CDRs. So let's get into the show, gentlemen, my co-host, Brennan and Aaron. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Doing well. It's nice to be back. It uh, feels like it's been a little while. It is. Sure, yeah, everybody's I need the world to us. hear our voices. Of course. We just want to hear we, Brennan's we've voice. We've been getting emails. Yeah. Tweets. Yeah. I had a lot of emails. You know, where have you been, Brennan? I've been missing you in my airways. Yeah. It was all, it's all about Brennan. Yeah. You know, nobody's mentioning yeah. Ryan yeah. or myself. Well, his mom and dad have been emailing him a lot. Yeah. It's true. With fake email tweeting accounts. At him. It's good. If anything, they're sick of hearing my voice. Yeah, they're sick of hearing mm, my voice, if anything. True. Yeah, calling Th- them. Then it's actually just them. Brennan creating, so, they're not creating alone. the fake email accounts. And- <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, so we, we had, um, the in the last week, we participated in the Virtual Canadian Money Show. We also have an SNL live conference coming up this week. I actually have a day coming up. Wednesday, where I go from nine till three, 10 interviews every half an hour we go essentially. So that'll be fun talking to uh, 11, 10 or 11 management teams. But last week we, um, we did a masterclass, a two hour seminar at the uh, Canadian Money Show. I did a presentation and I was on a panel we talked about, I was going to go over today some of the things we talked about there. So um, the, the first, one of the first questions and the kind of impetus behind the panel was about the best sectors or stocks uh, to invest in in late stages of a cycle. 
to which I said essentially that investing based on when, where one perceives we are in a cycle is really fraught with peril. I would say at a basic level, stock investing or finding good companies to invest in is hard enough unto itself. So you are, by looking at cycles or stages of an investment cycle, you are introducing another variable in regards to those cycles. And now, not only do you have to be right about the investment itself that you're investing in, the stock, but you have to be right about where you are in an economic cycle. So your guess or our guess or any analyst guess um, is just that, I guess. This unto itself is problematic to me in a number of ways. Uh, I'd say first, and kind of most importantly, you can just be plain wrong on this. Thus, the sectors you are investing in will likely be wrong. Those companies you're investing in that are in those sectors may be wrong. Second, even if you are somewhat right, you will exclude many segments that include great long-term investments to try, and you're trying to time the market for the next six to 18 months. That itself is poor strategy. So when trying to predict cycles, in my opinion, one is basically trying to time the market, which even for pros has proven to be a fool's game. So I didn't have much of a t- take other than I thought it was uh, is not the most productive thing to be looking at where we are in a cycle and to be investing for the next six to 12 months based on that. So I, I can get your guys' uh, thoughts I on mean, that I think as a well. fool's game is really is really the, the key mm-hmm. term there. And it is really a fool's game. And, and not to say that somebody is a fool for just trying, but you're almost always going to be made to look a fool. Um, and the last cycle that we've had that has lasted here for now over a decade has really proven that uh, more than any other cycle that I can think of in the past, because there's been many times um, over the past, say, five, six years, where people have called some type of a change, some type of a um, cyclical adjustment or reversal in the market or in the overall economy, and they've been wrong every time. If at any point in this cycle you decided to get out of the market, in anticipation of a major decline, with the exception of COVID, of course, but that was something that is completely outside of economics. That's a healthcare issue. But with the objective of trying to time your way back in, you just, you haven't made money. You've lost out on major returns here. And to us, investing, smart investing has always been about finding companies that can do well through different cycles. So you don't have to try and time the cycle. And, you know, an interesting thing for me is that, um, some people might be uh, might be familiar with Robert Schiller, who's an economist, very, very famous economist. Uh, he has written um, he's written a couple of books, um, but one specifically is called Irrational Exuberance. And there's been, I believe, three editions of this book. And he wrote the first one was just shortly before the dot com boom uh, or bust, and the the second one was just shortly before the two thousand eight financial crisis and the last one was in 2015 and he will be the first one to say don't try and time the market Um, but he identified some very troubling factors in the stock market before the the dot-com bust before the bubble burst um, before the 2008 financial crisis like shortly before within say like one or two years maybe before those those markets um, collapsed and a lot of people thought well this means he must be a, a brilliant market timer um, well, he put out his last edition in 2015 and he identified, you know, once again, he identified some very troubling 
things going on in the market and the economy that would have led some people to perhaps make the assumption that now was the time to just get out of the market based on his track record in the last two cycles um, and wait until there's a major collapse before they get back in. But this was in 2015 and there's been great returns. There's been great companies to invest in between 2015 and now. And I, I share people's concerns um, when you look at market valuations, when you look at some other factors in the economy. Um, but timing is is really, you have to be precise. And it's not just about identifying when there are things that look like trouble and when you should get out of the market, because then you're sitting in cash and then you have to also identify when to get back into the, mar into the market. And that for many people is the most difficult thing because by the time those uncertainties have gone away and there are clear signs that you're back in a bull market, most of those returns have already been generated. Um, so it's very easy to like look at the the economics 101 textbook or look at the market cycles um, on a historical chart and think that you can time, you know, the tops and the bottoms. But in practice, I just don't think anybody is able to do it consistently. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about Schiller because I'm going to talk about uh, another creation of his, the Schiller PE, in a second in, in terms of in regards to where the markets are right now. Uh, but as far as and you talked about cycles like we've been hearing for at least five years. And if you go back to five years ago, there was a time where most people were say, suggesting we were at the late stages of the cycle. And see, there's a playbook that, you know, some investors use when you're in late say, stages of a cycle, you go to cyclicals. And one of those cyclical industries back five years ago would have been energy. And if you would have put, you know, a portion of your portfolio significant towards energies, because that's your playbook that you do in terms of a late cycle, investing um you know there was a time where energy literally just and we've had a pickup of late but it literally just you know it dropped off a cliff you were losing there was people losing 75 percent of their value uh you can have a 50 percent gain after that but if you've lost 75 percent of your capital uh you're not getting that back um and and there is investing based on cyclical uh, where we are in the cyclical cycle of the investments or the the economy, and it just would have served you. It would have done, been a terrible place to put your money in your portfolio. So, I mean, these are things that I think it adds that other layer of risk that you don't need. We just want to focus on good businesses that we can buy regardless of the cycle and then buy more of them if you're in a down cycle, if they become on sale. Now, in terms of valuations, let's take a look here. Um, where are we in terms of the Schiller PE? Uh, valuations would right now give me reason to be cautious, and I am not an alarmist. We are we are long term GARP or growth at a reasonable price investors. But if you look at the cyclically adjusted PE ratio in reference to the S and P five hundred. It's at 40.4 right now. That's about 57% higher than the 20-year average of 25.7. Um, if you look at the 20-year low, it's 13.3. What is the 20-year high? Well, it's 40.4. We're at the 20-year high. So generally, if you look at the markets, a huge part of the S&P is the FANG stocks, essentially. And I've heard in some circles worried or so, that investors should be worried about these tech giants. They've had a tremendous run uh, that they've been on in recent years. I would say, and I said on the panel, I'm less worried about the FANG stocks, and we include Microsoft in that group. What I'd be more worried about is the next tier of companies. And any... Well, 
beyond, below this. There's a tier that includes like Adobe and Salesforce, uh, those companies as well. Um, I'm not as worried about those. And if you look at the valuations on the fangs, like Alphabet, 27 times their earnings in that range going forward, Meta, 25 times, even Amazon at 68. And we talked about this in our recent DIY seminars, um, lower, significantly lower than its uh, historical average. And we have had active buys on Microsoft and Alphabet and owned them for years. So I'm less worried about those. What I am worried about is what I call the mid tier to large cap tier of U.S. SaaS and technology companies below these. Companies that have been pushed uh, to blue sky valuations by what I would call Pollyanna type investing. Investors betting that all of these businesses will essentially become or a group of these will become the next FANG stocks 10 to 20 years out. Um, in the panel, I highlighted a few of these names uh, that included Palantir, Technology, Snowflake, uh, which traded then at 128 times sales, and DocuSign, which again then traded 30 times sales. These are good businesses. I'm not saying they're poor businesses. It's a valuation basis that I'm looking at them. There's great revenue growth there, uh, good niches that they have uh, good, uh, in great spaces with good growth. Uh, in fact, many of them we may want to own at some point, but in the near term, the valuation risk has been very high. In many of these cases, you're seeing stocks trading at 50 to 150 times sales. That's not earnings or cash flow, it's sales. So if I can contextualize this, and that's what I did on the panel, we looked at what the peak valuations were in terms of price to sales multiples. I'd love to use earnings or cash flow, but some of these businesses don't even have cash flow, so you want to compare them on a price to sales basis. Uh, to the current tech unicorns, what are the peak valuations for those tech unicorns, the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks or Metas, Netflix? Well, if you look at them, Netflix has never traded at a price to sales of greater than 15. Google or Alphabet has never traded at a price to sales over 24. Salesforce, never a price to sales over 20. Amazon at one point got to 40 times price to sales, but that was in the dot-com boom. Right About two years later, it was one times price to sales. So just a real high spike up there. Facebook, never more briefly at 24 times price to sales. So when I'm talking about these companies trading at 50 to 100 times price to sales, those are the tech, the absolute best case, the like 0.01% of the market that became these unicorns. And I hear the rationale for the high valuations in those companies. Uh, yes, they have strong recurring bases and they may dominate a sector at one point, but there's only five or six companies that become the tech leaders of the future. Um, those companies never approach the levels that these businesses were and are trading at. So I'm going to give you a real example of this. I noted DocuSign just last week. It was like Wednesday of last week. By Friday of last week, the company came out with uh, its earnings. They slightly missed. And there was a little bit of a, a trepidation in terms of the growth going forward. The stock dropped 42% in one day on Friday last week. So, I mean, that's a cautionary tale. Very good company in a great space. They're helping businesses, everything from banks to real estate firms, individuals to electronically apply a signature rather than an existing signature. But there was a slight miss in earnings and a pullback in terms of guidance going forward. Good company, good growth, but one stumble and it's cut in half. 
So premium valuations can do that. And, and we'd be very mindful of that going on the market right now and be a little bit cautious in terms of those companies. Yeah, it's really interesting when you put it into relation to you know, Netflix and Amazon and looking back at their price to sales multiples compared to, you know, what DocuSign yeah. was trading at and whatnot. You know, it really puts it into perspective, especially when you're looking at those behemoths uh, and they were never even trading at that pricey of multiples and uh, are Yeah, and we call them companies. unicorns for a reason. They're, you can't find them. You basically, yeah. it's hard to find these businesses and then you have this huge group that's trading in that range. And that's what's scary, right? Because those, mm-hmm. if there is a stumble, you know, and it, we've seen it in Canada too, as well. Like you look at Lightspeed, right? Uh, just in September, trading at forty times sales. The company we get questions about it all the time, and it kept running higher and higher. But it's light on cash flow. The growth is good from acquisitions. Light on cash flow, not close to earnings. The stop has dropped over sixty percent since September. It still trades at seventeen times sales. With you know, and there's not a ton, not there's not real earnings there at this stage either. So. My broader argument argument would be the larger cap fangs, we're not as worried about them as we are the mid-cap tech darlings of the past two to three years. That's where I see risk uh, right now in the market. And we're seeing it play out already. No, I mean, some of the best value, particularly in the tech space, is actually in the fang stocks. I mean, if you look at these companies- Which is crazy. I, it's not crazy, but to say, yeah, but yeah it's, it's shocking to some people. Technologically, so influential, so influential to the market. Um, they, they account- those the five companies what I consider the Fang stocks the Meta which was Facebook Apple Amazon uh, Google which the name is actually Alphabet and then Microsoft um, together they account for about 23 24 percent of the total market value of the S and P 500 but only one percent of the number of stocks um, but they they've been earning their valuations as you said for most of them valuations in the you know 25 to 30 times 35 times range, even Amazon, you know, lower at about 60, 70 times earnings, um, lower than it's historical, quite a bit lower than it's historical. And these companies are growing. They're growing their their revenues at, you know, 15, 25% a year or more um, earnings at that or above. So they're, they're some of the, I believe, some of the highest quality businesses out there. And there's some great stocks um, in the mid cap space. In the, in the technology sector as well. But what I'm noticing, and, and this is with DocuSign, it's with some others, and I was just taking a look at, at Zoom as well, which was a huge pandemic play. I mean, that stock is down, um, it's, it's down over 50%, I think about 60% from its highs earlier in the year, right? And these are companies that there just was not as much of a focus on profitability. It was more about revenue, pushing high levels of revenue growth, um, and less so that focus on profitability, whereas that is not the case with the fangs. The fangs, those companies are highly profitable businesses growing at double digits uh, and and in some of the most exciting technology themes out there like AI, cloud computing, um, e-commerce and, and, and other areas as well. So it's um, it's if I were to tell if somebody were to say, what companies do you need to own in the technology space? We have a couple in the fang group that would be at the top of the list yeah and i guess the exciting thing is when you see some of these names that you've watched for years now um you know if if there is another cut in the prices there may be some opportunities that start to uh that start to uh, you know rear their head essentially in those segments companies that we've tracked for years that we'd probably like to buy but we're not going to buy them at 50 or 100 times sales 
you know, if the issue is like you've seen a 50% cut, say, in DocuSign, do you need a 75% from Peaks to get down to a, a better valuation? And that may be the case. I'm not saying that company specifically, but I, there definitely are companies out there that need a 75% and have needed. Now, some of them have already experienced some of that cut, like a DocuSign, but they've needed that type of valuation adjustment to come to where maybe they're trading at 40 times earnings then. Still, they've dropped that much and then they're finally trading that and matching their growth rate of maybe 30 to 40 times. And you know, for us, we may get some opportunities when that happens. We'll continue to watch those businesses and see if we can have a, a decent entry point over the, uh, over the next year. Now, we got a question come in. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Aaron said it was uh, from a, a listener. says, I know you guys usually stay away from commodities, but you have mentioned liking royalty companies better. I was wondering what your thoughts are on Nova Royalty Corp and Electric Royalties Limited. Aaron, you took a look at those two businesses. Happy, you happy to answer this that? one. So For sure. what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look. I'm just going to provide some points on each of these companies individually, and then we can um, we can give Keystone State take on the two. So we'll start with Nova Royalty Corp. The symbol is N-O-V-R. It trades on, trades on the Venture Exchange. It has been a public company since September of 2020, right now trading at a price of 295 and a market capitalization of about 240 million. So they are they call themselves a royalty company focused on copper and nickel. The company's acquired royalties on 19 different properties located in North and South America. To date, only one of these royalty properties is a producing asset. Six are asset, Six of the assets are listed as development stage, and the remaining 13 royalties are on exploration projects. We took a look at the financials. Q3, Q3 revenue for Nova, 182000 very low revenues. Uh, no profitability, negative cash flow. That cash burned for the first nine months of the year was approximately $3 million, and they have $2.2 million in cash on the balance sheet as of the end of the third quarter. I've looked, I looked through the, the presentation, through the, the news releases. There's no guidance that I was able to find on revenue or profitability. They did complete their last share offering on August 25th, 4.1 million shares at a price of $3.30. Um, the acquisition of the royalty on its single producing asset was completed on August 27th, and the payments are expected to be received semi-annually. So we haven't really seen what uh, what that um, royalty property is going to look like in terms of cash flow, uh, and and we don't have guidance on it either. So investors will just have to watch for future reports. Now the second company, Electric Royalties Limited, the symbol ELEC, also on the TSX Venture Exchange. It has been public since June of 2020. Trades at a price of just under 40 cents per share and a market capitalization of 27 million. So they bill themselves as a royalty company established to take advantage of the demand for a wide range of commodities that will benefit from decarbonization or electrification. So this would include lithium, um, uh, vanadium, but also some, some more traditional metals like nickel, zinc, and copper. Uh, the company reports a portfolio of 18 royalty properties located mostly in Canada and Australia. 
looking at the financials, this company has so far reported zero revenue. So no, nothing on the revenue line. They have a cash burn for the first nine months of the year of about two point, or sorry, $1.2 million, $1.2 million in cash burn uh, for the first nine months. They have $2.8 million in cash sitting on their, on their balance sheet. Once again, no financial guidance on revenue or profitability. Now, the company did announce on October 28th that it received its first cash royalty from the re recent acquisition of a producing property. Uh, but there's no specific numbers provided there. So we don't know what this payment looked like. And I suppose we won't know until the next quarter comes out. What is Keystone's take? We would not be buyers of either of these companies. Both are highly speculative by our analysis with little to nothing in the way of actual financial performance. Investors can keep an eye out for future quarterly reports to see how much each company's single producing royalty stream will contribute in terms of cash flow. But my sense is that if these companies were expecting significant revenue and cash flow over the next few quarters, then they would have announced this specifically to investors. In the case of Nova, we've seen to date almost no revenue. And in the case of electric royalties, we've seen zero revenue. Another thing to note uh, is that both of these companies are promoting themselves as part of the renewable or clean tech theme, which is currently very popular with investors. In my opinion, this is somewhat disingenuous. I can kind of see this argument with electric royalties because of some of the metals that they report in their portfolio, like lithium. But in the case of Nova, this is primarily copper and nickel, which is used in some renewable technologies. But still, I think it's a real stretch to build a copper mining company as part of the clean energy trend. So what I'm seeing from these two names right now uh, is a lot of promotion, really nothing in terms of solid financial performance that we can dig into and actually analyze we would avoid them at this time. Uh, if you want to follow them, go ahead and do that. Now, I don't like to leave things on a low note, so I'm just going to mention another company <laughs> that uh, we have been looking at recently. It's a small cap copper company. It's on our it's on our monitor list. Uh, we may be talking to management sometime in the near future. This is not the company's name is Amerigo. Amerigo. Uh, the symbol is A R G. This is not a royalty company. They produce copper tailings out of a mine in Chile. It's also not a recommendation. We're not specifically recommending it, but I am mentioning it because the, the person who asked the question was talking about commodity price exposure, um, specific to, to royalties, but you know this is something that is producing strong cash flow. They are paying a dividend of 6% and they have a sizable cash balance. So these are good fundamentals that we can actually look at and analyze. Um, right now, as I said, Amerigo is just, it's a name on our monitor list that we continue to review, but I'm mentioning it here just so at the very least we can end this segment on a high note. Awesome. No, yeah, I get, I think it's good to add, uh, add a little bit of, uh, an idea of some other companies that we're looking at. I hate being at, so negative, you know, you know have some it, it, more fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I mean, it, it, in terms of there, those two interesting companies that somebody brought and we've looked at them in the past as well, the, the, and you know, capitalizing on uh, what is hot segments in the market right now. But, you know, one thing I would say with these businesses like Nova royalty, like there's not a lot of cash. I think you said in the bank here. Uh, and if there, even if there is cash in the bank with the valuation in terms of the market, they're getting relative cash flow that isn't there right now. There's a cash burn. I would raise as much money right and now as possible soon. at the price they're raise, trading at. Uh, yeah. Soon. I, I mean, you, 
they, they need to be doing that because, you know, we've seen for these royalty companies, your lifeblood is cash. You know, you need to have good assets, but you need to have cash to, you know, to continue to grow, to buy and fund other companies with these royalties. So I would be out there uh, raising money. I wouldn't expect, uh, I would expect that to see that a share offering and, and in the near future. to be clear, when I say cash burn, I'm not including any type of capital investments or acquisitions. These are just, oh, no. this is just operating cash flow burn. So the to actual, keep the lights yeah, on? So yeah. the actual <laughs> cash flow out the door is going to be even higher than that. Yeah. Okay, Brennan, uh, you got a question that came in from uh, Tom in Saskatoon, I think. He said, I was wondering if you would provide a discussion regarding the pros and cons of Canadian depository receipts issued by CIBC for fractional ownership of expensive U.S. stocks. Are they appropriate for small investors looking to participate in some of those companies? I'm going to let you describe what CDRs are and uh, yeah. you know some of your thoughts on you that. You bet. I'll take it away. Um, first of all, I guess, you know, I just want to say hopefully Tom, uh, being a Saskatchewan resident, hopefully he is, uh, handling that, uh, Saskatchewan Rough Rider loss yesterday better than, uh, my dad and mm. a couple of my friends. Cause, uh, yeah, it was a tough one. It was a tough one. <laughs> Anyways, let's, uh, let's take a look at CDRs here. Winnipeg is a juggernaut. Team, I know. So I wouldn't I know. feel so bad. It was so a great bad. game though. Feel so it bad. was a great we're, game. We're from Vancouver. Yeah. We oh, can handle least- we can have yeah. losses better than everybody. <laughs> yes, you can. We just lost uh, on our team. We just lost our entire, uh, basically our coaching staff and our GM and uh, the AGM, best loss which we've had. I'm, in years, say I'm though, cheering right? about. <laughs> I'm cheering this loss right now. But anyway, yes, but, that well, you are. although I, I, I put a, I put a caveat there. We'll see who replaces the GM, uh, and let's get a president in there and. Uh, Get that owner, just you some bet. buffer between him and the You'll team. You'll be a happy but man. We could go on about this, and we won't. Yeah, and then I'll never get to CDRs, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, okay, Canadian Depository Receipts, CDRs. Um, they're essentially modeled after the American Depository Receipt, or ADR, uh, which is a bank-issued certificate representing a fractional number of shares in a foreign company for trade on a Canadian stock exchange. So essentially, Canadian depository receipts are listed in Canadian dollars on Canadian exchanges. So Canadians now have better access to large U.S. tech stocks for a fraction of the price and no longer need to worry about those pesky foreign currency fluctuations, which can help or hinder their returns, of course. So to provide a quick answer to Tom's question, are they appropriate for small investors to gain access to these U.S. stocks? Yes, They are appropriate for small investors looking to participate in some of these large U.S. tech companies, especially if the investor wants to avoid foreign uh, currency fluctuations between the U.S. and Canada, or if they don't have much capital to allocate to a company. You know, let's say someone only has $1,000 Canadian to invest in Amazon. Well, they can't go out and purchase one share uh, of Amazon on the NASDAQ because I believe it's around $3,400 U.S. right now. So instead, they could turn to purchase uh, the CDR, which represents a fractional share of Amazon on a Canadian exchange. So with that being said, let's just jump into the the pros and cons here. I'm going to just breeze over these. So the pros, like I said, lower cost to gain exposure to the company you want to invest in. Um, You know, generally, we wouldn't put too much focus on this. We usually just want to focus on, you know, your overall dollars that you're investing in a company, not 
you know the actual price per share that you're paying um, in the market. Um, but like I said, <clears throat> with the example with Amazon, it can be beneficial if you can't purchase one share of a specific company. Now, furthermore, uh, Canadian investors no longer need to worry about those foreign currency implications, uh, such as you know conversion fees to transfer their Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars, so that they can go purchase those U.S. stocks. They no longer need to worry about the fluctuating uh, FX rate, as the uh, CDR is currency hedged, which I will get into a little bit later, just to kind of explain how that works. And also, investors do not need to record the foreign currency exchange rate when they purchased and sold the stock to accurately calculate their taxable gain. Usually, uh, you know, your your online broker will do this for you, um, but you know, it can be kind of a tedious process to uh, accurately calculate your capital gains. Um, so, con continuing on with the pros, uh, dividends in Canadian depository receipts flow through to the CDR holder in Canadian dollars, which is a benefit. Uh, investors still receive voting rights on the shares that they have. And then as well, uh, Canadian depository receipts don't uh, charge management fees, which is nice. So you're gaining exposure to these without uh, getting charged, you know, an additional fee. So jumping to the cons here. Um, First off, this, you know, by just exposing yourself to Canadian dollars, you are limiting your broader diversification across currencies for a portfolio. Now, currency fluctuations do not just work against an investor, of course, as they can also add to your total return if the investment currency appreciates. So avoiding currency fluctuations isn't always uh, the best thing to do. And we would say that currency diversification is prudent in a Canadian portfolio, a well-diversified Canadian portfolio. And then furthermore, uh, investors are still charged with holding taxes on their dividends. Um, so just because they are receiving the dividends in Canadian dollars, investors must remain cognizant that they will continue to be taxed the same as if they held the stock on the NASDAQ or a U.S. exchange. So this really isn't, you know, uh, an additional uh, con for, um, you know, CDRs, but it's just something to keep in mind uh, where some people might think that they're actually, you know, getting away from those withholding taxes. So just to drive the point a little bit further, um, we were recently asked by a client, why is there a difference between the trading price of Microsoft shares on the NASDAQ versus the Canadian NEO exchange, which is where all, uh, most of these or all of these CDRs uh, do trade. So just to, uh, to drive, drive home the point here, uh, I just have a quick example here. So currently, um, or at least this is a few days ago, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft shares were trading on the NASDAQ uh, at about $336 US per one share. Whereas Microsoft's CDR on the Canadian NEO exchange represents a fractional share, about 6% of one share to be exact. And you can actually go onto CIBC's website to find each CDR's CDR ratio, uh, which is where I got that 6% from. So if we take that 6% of one share of Microsoft trading on the NASDAQ at $336, we get an amount of just above $20 US. So after converting to Canadian dollars at an exchange rate of approximately $1.25 Canadian per US dollar, the Canadian share price is approximately $25.20 per share, which equates to uh, what the CDR was essentially trading at at that time. So I just wanted to uh, give kind of a, a visual representation there. Um, 
you know, and now taking it one step further to understand how the CDR hedges the foreign currency fluctuations, uh, the CDR ratio is automatically adjusted on a daily basis. So for example, if the Canadian dollar increases in value compared to the US dollar, the CDR ratio would be adjusted upward to reflect the change in value to Canadian uh, to a Canadian investor. So potentially for Microsoft, as I went over there, uh, it was a CDR ratio of about 6%. Well, that, you know, CDR ratio might increase increase to 6.1% if the Canadian dollar appreciates. So to sum it up, essentially, whether CDRs are right for your portfolio really come down to whether you want to avoid foreign currency fluctuations. Now, you know, CDRs are another way of owning large US tech companies at a fraction of the price. But at the end of the day, we believe it is generally prudent for Canadian investors to have some exposure to US dollars, given the currency's positive effects on broader diversification for a portfolio. Hopefully everyone's still awake after that uh, full description. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting that CIBC brought uh, these CDRs in and uh, yeah, just seeing, uh, do you guys have any other comments on that? Uh, maybe, maybe a question. Um, so right now there's there's only a small number of companies that actually are, are available as CDRs, is that correct? Correct. Correct. Yes, okay. I believe it's about twenty, from my understanding. I should grab the. I, really, I should have brought a list, but uh, yes, um, it is primarily just the large uh, tech companies from the U.S. And I think you know, last week CIBC ended up adding, I believe, six more companies. So you can definitely you know uh, anticipate more CDRs uh, coming in the future, um, and, and all of that can be found on uh, CIBC's website. Or I believe even if you just go to the NEO Exchange website, N-E-O, NEO Exchange's website, uh, they have them all listed there and their prices and their CDR ratio. So you can kind of get, get an idea or a feel for how things work. Excellent. Yeah, we've had a number of questions on them, so you can tell they are popular. There's probably just going to be more and more of them. Uh, and it's just interesting to at least define to our listeners and our clients what they are and uh, you know how they work and you know essentially they can be an option for you but again I don't I don't always see it as a negative and, and it can be often a positive owning uh, or having some of your shares in your account and some of your holdings essentially in US dollars uh, I think it provides that diversification that uh, some people need, but there are definitely some use cases for those CDOs. And I'd also say that you're not you're not escaping when you're investing in a foreign company, even with your own currency. You're not completely escaping no. that that currency fluctuation. You're just you're essentially just you're you're investing you're using Canadian dollars, but ultimately, um, you know, the value is going to fluctuate based on the exchange. Yeah. yeah, for sure, it is now. I guess that'll kick or that'll close off our show for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank you for sending your questions in. Keep your questions coming in for our Your Stock, Our Take segments. Ask us anything. Uh, keep rating us and reviewing us on iTunes. And as we move towards YouTube, you should see us uh, in short order uh, doing shows uh, on uh, in video format as well. And we all look forward to seeing our faces out there uh, in the near future. Thank you very much. And I wish, wish you, as always, profitable investing. Thank you. Profitable investing. Thanks, everyone.